So there's two defining criteria, intentionality and measurability. So you have to be trying <laughs> to try to generate a positive impact, and then you have to measure it. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Hi, and welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. This is Jason Watt. In this episode, I'm joined by David O'Leary of Kind Wealth. Uh, some of you might know David also as the host of the Impact Investing podcast, which I've spoken about here previously. This episode is good for life insurance credits in all jurisdictions. For those in Alberta, it's a life insurance credit, not an accident sickness credit. It's also good for a financial planning credit from FP Canada and a professional development credit from IROC. The color for today's episode is blue. The color for today's episode is blue. Okay, David does a pretty good job avoiding acronyms here. Uh, the one acronym that he uses that um, not everybody might be familiar with is SMA. SMA are separately managed accounts, really like a custom built mutual fund. This is where an investor takes money to an asset manager and the asset manager really treats that, that customer's money like one pool of dollars that's invested and the, the investments then are going to match what the, what the customer is looking for. Okay, we went uh, quite long here, a little over an hour of content, so we're going to roll right into it. Um, I learned a lot in this interview and I got to ask David a broad range of questions. You'll hear that he's got... Uh, a great variety of uh, exposure to different areas, and I really uh, enjoyed this. So let's hear what uh, David has to say. I'm joined today by David O'Leary. David is the principal at Kind Wealth and also host of the Impact Investing podcast, one of the regulars in my uh, podcast cycle. David, can you give us a little bit of a rundown on your uh, introduction? I know you've got a, a fairly lengthy background here, and I always find it interesting. I'm hoping you can uh, show us how you got where you are today. Yeah, sure. Thanks for, for having me. I'm excited to, to do this uh, podcast and have this conversation. Uh, so where to begin? I, I mean, I, I'll, I'll give the short version of this story. I, I spent most of my career in um, working for Morningstar, uh, running the uh, manager research team there. And so what that means is I had a team of analysts and we would uh, evaluate the professional money managers running um, primarily mutual funds. So these are long only actively managed strategies. Um, and sometimes that meant, you know, pension managers, like pooled fund managers, um, seg funds, things like that. But it's typically like a single strategy that you know, there's a, a mutual fund version, a seg fund version, and potentially even a pooled fund version of the same strategy, same team of people running a Canadian equity mandate, for instance. And so we would evaluate those professionals. And, and our goal was to say, 
uh, not only look backwards and say, did they do well in the past, but can they do well in the future? And we would rate these managers and these funds um, on uh, five different factors that ultimately culminated in a single score that said whether we, we thought they could outperform or not. Um, and I did that for about 10 years in Canada and Toronto and then moved to South Africa with Morningstar and did the same thing there um, for the South African market. So got to learn all about that regulatory environment and a whole different set of asset managers, which is a fascinating experience. And um, I left there and I went to start a, came, moved back to Canada and started a financial advisory practice with a couple of buddies of mine who were already advisors with Manulife Securities. And we were um, running um, essentially doing you know, financial planning and discretionary um, uh, investment management for high net worth kind of retirement age clients. And I was really interested in the kind of helping clients align their money and their values. And so getting into things like responsible investing and, and helping clients with philanthropy. Um, so these are areas that a, that a lot of advisors still aren't focused a lot on. And so uh, we did that for a couple of years, but we just didn't see eye to eye and weren't quite aligned on, on where our passions lay. And so I, I left uh, in 2017, started Kind Wealth. Um, I can talk a little bit about Kind Wealth. I'm sure we will today. But uh, the only thing I'll, I'll, last thing I'll mention is uh, I, I spent about three years running the impact investing arm of a large INGO called World Vision. So they do humanitarian work, particularly around helping improve the lives of vulnerable children. And my role there was how do we use investment capital rather than donor capital, like donations. So instead of donations or in addition to donations, how do we get people to give some of their investment capital? We're going to pay it back to them down the road with, with a rate of return. But while we have that capital, can we do things that are going to improve the lives of vulnerable children? And that was my, my mandate uh, running that team. Um, and I uh, host a podcast on impact investing and a newsletter and a whole bunch of other things, but I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I've seen World Vision's work. I did some, I, I was in the army previously and, oh, wow. uh, so you see the development signs go up, you know, uh, like yeah. your projects go up and World Vision often has their banner on the bottom right corner of these, you know, multi hundred of millions of dollar projects, right. Where there's these, uh, yeah, I mean, I won't, I won't belabor this, but just what's, what's very interesting about World Vision as opposed to, um, that distinguishes it from a lot of other humanitarian organizations and INGOs is they are operational in something like, uh, you know, nearly 100 countries across the globe. Um, they have about 50,000 um, employees and uh, 98 or 99% of them are um, indigenous to the countries they work in. So they'll work in Sierra Leone or Ghana or Kenya, and there'll be Kenyans employed in those. And they work not just in the, in the main, you know, capital cities, but they spread right across to the most remote villages. So as you say, you can be in a tiny little village and, you know, the outskirts of Sierra Leone and see a world vision sign because they're doing work in those communities because it's locals who are doing that work. Um, and so it's a, uh, it's a really interesting model. Yeah, I, uh, it, it's always, I, I learned a lot from seeing those, uh, those projects uh, going on. Right? Yeah. Um, so I actually, I'm going to uh, deviate again here a little bit. And I'm just curious because of all your time analyzing managers, can I back you into a corner a little bit here? Yeah. So do you think that like, are there managers where good performance persists? Does just from your experience, does active pay, right? Is that, is this an independent? Yeah, I think it's a great, I, I mean, I think the answer is pretty obvious, to be honest with you. If you don't have a bias, I think the answer is pretty clear that active managers 
the it's a minority of them that outperform and we can debate is it you know 90% of them that underperform or is it 60% of them that underperform but the point is it's pretty clear that it's a minority of active managers that outperform that also just kind of makes sense intuitively because the markets are relatively efficient <laughs> um, and it's really hard to outperform. There's a lot of like, it, it, there's probably not a competition in the world that is more well-funded and well-resourced than competing in the public markets for return and alpha. So of course, it's going to be very difficult to do that. But I think it's also unfair to say the other way that it never pays and you can't possibly you know, make anything. I think the, the, the practical answer is it's just, it's really, really hard. And so is it worth it? And I think the answer, if you're a retail investor, and quite frankly, if you're a retail financial advisor is no, it's not worth it. I mean, go ahead and try if you want to, but I think you will lose more often than you will win. Um, and so just practically in my life, what that's meant is, you know, I did this for 13 years at Morningstar, all told. I had a team of analysts at all of Morningstar's institutional data available to me, I direct access to their database. Um, so all the information and also access to the fund companies. So when we called up a fund company, you know, they took, they picked up the phone and we would schedule, you know, a, a day long you know, meeting where we'd go meet all the people in the firm and they'd roll out the kind of red carpet to talk to us about how they do what they do. And with all of those resources, and that was my full-time job with my other, you know, seven analysts, we got it right. Just, you know, ballpark, uh, we were able to predict in advance somewhere in between, depending on the category of fund, something like 55 to 65% of the time we would be right about, about it. So not bad, but like not a huge margin, right? Like, you know, if, if you can get it right slightly more often than you get it wrong, then it's worth it. But you're putting a lot of time and energy and that was with all the resources and all the institutional memory. So as a, when, I, when I went to, as I explained, I, I started an advisory practice with some friends. We were running model portfolios. What I found very quickly in that experience was, oh boy, I don't have nearly the same time to de dedicate to this. I don't have a team of people around me. I don't have access to the same data. And the fund companies won't give me the same time and energy because I'm just Dave O'Leary, not Morningstar behind me. And what that meant was, I didn't feel well equipped to be able to pick active managers. So I, my philosophy was I'm going to pick the default be benchmark, like a passive offering, unless I felt really compelled about some sort of active offering, in which case I would. And certain categories, an active offering can make more sense. So like US equities is real tough to beat the market, whereas emerging markets, uh, you know, maybe a China equity fund or a... Uh, some sort of fixed income, exotic fixed income offering, or, you know, you can imagine there's like a number of areas where, um, where you might have opportunities to find more, you know, efficiencies through active management. Canadian equity, it was actually an interesting example, like mowers did such a great job and I knew the firm really well. So they were an example of a manager that I stuck with at the active, even though, you know, generally I went passive, but that was my philosophy is go passive unless you've really got strong, compelling evidence to, to choose an active manager. Interesting. And when you say you're right, you know, 65% ish of the time, I mean, there's degrees of degrees of rightness there too. Yeah. Right? That's, yeah that that's just a very simple, like, consider it like a batting average. Like, were we, were, did it outperform regardless of the size of the outperformance? Did right. it beat its benchmark? And we looked at that over three, five, 10 year periods um, and, and over rolling periods. So like, I'm, I'm oversimplifying. You could really dive into the analysis, but 55 to 65% of the time, 
you know, it's, it's not bad, but it's not amazing because it's really hard. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. That's, that's a really great answer. I like that. Now, you've, uh, you've talked a little bit about your business model here in Kind Wealth. Can you just go into this a little bit more and talk to us about how you deal with individual clients? And then do you have other kinds of clients at, at Kind Wealth? Yeah, so we, um, when I left, my previous clients were dealing with retirement age kind of folks, a traditional, very, very traditional type of client and practice. And we went, and I pivoted very hard to A, serve a younger demographic. So our, our target market is 30 to 50 year olds, um, young families with kids primarily, uh, young professionals, things like that, um, and advice-only financial planning. And that was, the advice-only financial planning was kind of motivated by two things. One was the, um, the difficulty of setting up discretionary portfolio management when you're an independent you need the kind of scale, the costs and effort to setting that up is onerous. We didn't have the scale to do it. But but also what excited me was that it's very aligned with some of the ch- problems I see in the industry and some of the challenges I was trying to solve, particularly around transparency of pricing and conflicts of interest. So transparency, meaning you know, our clients pay us in dollars and cents. We do a, f- a subscription model where they can pay monthly, but either way, it's just coming out of their bank account or off their credit card in flat dollar terms, not percentage of investments. Um, so I like that transparency and it removed the conflicts of interest that I think occur when financial planning and investment management are bundled under one percentage of assets pricing. Um, because if your client comes to you with any questions about what should I do with my money, you have a, you know, you've got a bias to tell them to invest. And oftentimes that's the right thing to do, but not always, right? So maybe they should be paying down debt or donating or, you know, giving, uh, buying real estate or whatever the case is. So um, that was the, the, the idea. So we serve those clients, like a younger demographic, field, like advice only financial planning. And then I also provide uh, invest, like responsible investment consulting. So oftentimes these will be high net worth clients, older, typically a little older because they've got a big enough portfolio to, to go out and pay somebody to help them with it, where they want to align it with their values. And then I'll, I'll take a look at like, what do you care about? What issues do you want to see? You know, do you want to impact through your portfolio? And then what are those investment options? How can we restructure this portfolio? And I'll help them figure that out. And those are with individuals, not a lot of institutional work like that. Like you don't do any work with, say, community foundations or something like that. No, yeah, that's that's primarily um, high net worth individuals. Uh, and um, uh, you know, the, the one area I've just been thinking about, I, I suspect there's a lot of financial advisors because I I've been through it myself, where you'd like to start helping your clients with it, you don't know how. I've been kind of toying with the idea of. You, should I offer some sort of service to, to help advisors who need help figure out how to transition their practice to be able to incorporate ESG and responsible and investing into their practice? But I, I haven't done that as of yet. Uh, yeah, I, I recently read something, maybe on financialplanning.com, something, one of the American sites where something like 70% of clients felt like they had asked their advisor about, I think they said ethical investing, but something in that ballpark, right? And something like 30% of the advisors felt like they had had that conversation with their clients. So like there's a clearly a disconnect there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So on the financial advisory side, then dealing with those, let's say household clients, not your high net worth clients. So can you talk us through a, a typical engagement? Like how do you, how do you meet that client? Do they find you on their website, on your website. Are they finding you from like 
the podcast or Twitter? And then how do you how do you work with those folks through to the point of them, let's say, walking away with a financial plan or whatever your your end result is here? Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, primarily, we find clients through uh, word of mouth, just like traditional uh, networking and people, you know, friend of a friend or somebody who knows me. Um, the other primary way would through content marketing. So the podcast articles I've written, social media posts, uh, anything like that. And, uh, and it's usually some combination of the two, right? Like the just, Oh, I came across you at a presentation or somebody referred me to you or mentioned you. And then I saw your social media posts. So these things actually, you know, work together, um, to, to end up, generating a prospect. Um, and people will come through the website. We drive everybody through the website. They go through a, a, an online intake form where they answer a bunch of questions about their financial circumstances. They get a, a, a link to book a, a time to chat. Um, uh, it's a free onboarding sort of, is this the right fit type of meeting where they'll tell me a little bit more about what they're looking for. I usually take that call and I talk to them about, you know, what are their circumstances and what do we do? And is that the right fit? And then, um, and then I, we work, I, I have a number of financial planners that work with kind wealth. And then I'll sort of think about who's the best fit this client fit best with in terms of the, the planners. Cause each of them have their different areas of focus and specialization in terms of type of client they like to work with or types of issues they, they, they want to work on. And then, and, and, or it could be price point or just availability right? Who's free right now. Um, and so then I try to match them, set up a call with that planner, and then they can have a deeper dive with that planner so that the planner can come out of that. That's another free call. Try to keep it to half an hour. Sometimes they go a little longer and then they come out of that with, okay, here's what I'm hearing you say, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and here's what I can deliver for you. And here's what it would cost. And then the client at that point can make a decision about whether they want to work with us. And yeah, you know, I find we, we close probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 70% of the, the, the clients who, well, probably more like 80 once they make it through the intake call with me. And so then when they, um, there's two primary ways we can work with clients. One is on an ongoing basis. The other is on a one-off basis, kind of a project basis. So I try to feel that out with the client and then the planner does as well in advance, which is what does this person need? So if they're younger, the money's tight, they've got a lot of debt, their goals are pretty obvious, things aren't that complex, probably opt more towards a project-based work where we define, we're going to have X number of meetings and deliver these deliverables at this cost, and then we're done. And after that, if they want to come back to us, they can, but we'll have to quote them another engagement. And that's how most advice-only planning is done still in Canada. Um, and what we really pioneered, I think, you know, there were maybe only, I only know of maybe one or two others at the time that were doing it four years ago when we started, which is the subscription-based approach, which is very common in the U.S. Um, so it wasn't an original idea, but we were one of the first ones to do it here where we'll work with people on an ongoing basis where they're going to pay us a, a, an upfront fee, but it's smaller than what it would be if they did a project-based work and then they'll pay us a monthly fee and we'll keep working with them then as long as they want to. And they, they can cancel that monthly fee at any time if they're not happy with the service or they don't need it anymore. But otherwise we just assume we're going to work with them for life and we'll be there to adapt and adjust as time their life changes. And for younger folks, because we're focused on a younger demographic kind of makes sense, right? Like financial planning needs are highly tied to life events and life of, you know, the big types of life events that lead your financial plan to change meaningfully or disproportionately happen to you when you're younger. 
So getting married, getting divorced, having kids, starting a new job, quitting your job, starting a business. It's funny because these are the same arguments that show up in the, uh, like why we should still have DSC right. side of the house, right? That young, young people can't afford financial planning. So this is, uh, this is, I'm not trying to compare like subscription-based financial planning to DSC. That's not it. But I just find right. it's like finding a, a workable solution for that. It's such a, such a big challenge, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, to me, it, it just feels like this is a great solution to the, because that, that is the common objection, right? Is, well, if we get rid of DSC, then clients who don't have, you know, big portfolios won't get serviced. And I think like, it's a fair concern, but I think the, m- most of the people who argue it, who are, who've been all in on DSCs, I think are being disingenuous because I, you know, and this is, you know, I think probably, I think you've had Jason Perra on this podcast before. If not, your probably listeners are familiar with him, but. Not yet. I'll get him on it. Oh, okay. You got to get him on. Yeah. But it, this yeah. is his line, but like, what else have you tried? <laughs> yeah, this, I agree. It's a solution that lacks imagination or a, a thought process that lacks imagination. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's, so this to me was like, hey, let's try this out. And a lot of people thought I was crazy. And I think, you know, we've had really great success rates with it um, in terms of, you know, client retention has been very, very high, 90 plus percent. Um, and we've only been around for four years, but you know, we've kept 90% of our, our, our clients, um, our ongoing retainer clients. The other thing I, I and I don't want to, you know, ramble down this path if you don't want to hear it, but the, the thing with the sub- subscription-based planning is it, it actually fundamentally kind of altered how we delivered financial planning and our motive, like what it incentivized us to do. And I'd be happy to talk about that if you want, but we don't, I don't want to derail the podcast if that's not a direction you want to go. I, I am curious to hear that. I have one other question before we go down that path though. Sure, please. Um, and that is, so in the United States, of course, I think probably half of uh, subscription-based uh, planners use advice pay as their back end. I know this has been a challenge. I've seen a few Canadian advisors present this problem where they say, well, what do I do if I want to set up subscription? And what I don't want, without giving away the secret sauce, what can you tell us here about your backend? Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, my backpack is a whole patchwork of software, which is probably common for most advisors, and a lot of them don't talk to one another um, and don't integrate very well, which is a problem. Uh, so making use of apps and things like that. But I use Stripe for the payment processing, and they've got a monthly uh, recurring uh, payment feature that it, you know is pretty simple to use and uh, has given me no problems. Um, it takes a little bit more, I think, time and effort, energy to set up than advice pay, but, um, but you know, it's been a great option for me. Yeah. And actually listeners to this podcast who get their CE credits are, they're a Stripe clients, whether they know it or not. So. Oh, right. Yeah. Cause you use yeah. Stripe as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Cause it's what you do for subscription services. It, it works. So yeah. Um, so now you had said you could talk a little bit more about the sort of, let's say, removal of conflicts or something in that vein with uh, subscription services. And I am curious to hear this. So if you can take us a little further down that path. Yeah, I mean, so the removal of conflicts of interest is one. Um, but what I was actually referring, and I'm, I can talk about that, but what I was talking about was actually a little different. It, it's along the lines of just the way in which we are paid changes our incentives and motivations more fundamentally than I expected it would, even outside of removing the conflicts of interest. So just quickly, you know, the conflicts, as I mentioned, alluded to earlier, right, is we don't sell a product and we don't care what they do with their money. It won't change what we're compensated. So we just 
have no bias at all on what we, you know, our advice is only constrained by what we think is best for them and not by what's going to be better for us. Um, but the other thing that happened was the, what we, what I had defaulted to because I had always been under an, an arrangement where it was AUM pricing was, um, and though I think just the way the industry kind of typically structures is we're going to have an intake meeting with the client. We're then going to go back, build the financial plan and have a delivery meeting. And we're going to, you know, try to have as few meetings as possible because we don't get paid anymore to do more meetings. So let's be efficient. And that makes sense, right? Like, let's try to be efficient about our time and energy. It's a business after all. Um, but what, what happens in my experience anyway was, and I think a lot of advisors can resonate with this, is the delivery meeting is, can, can be a very long meeting. And if it's not long, you're really rushing to try to get it all in. And so you're covering investments and estate planning and taxation and their pension and benefits and, you know, all the things. And the client is just getting inundated with all this advice and information. And an advisor can quickly flip between these things easy because it's all easy stuff for them. But for the client, it's overwhelming. And so they end up retaining very little of it. And then you're done this delivery meeting and you say, okay, great. We'll see you again next year. And so, you know, they may, you know, coming out of that meeting, maybe they've got a whole bunch of takeaways to do's that they need to do. They need to call their pension administrator, increase their monthly contributions to their pension. So they increase their match. They need to call the lawyer and get a will put in place. They need to, you know, da, 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 all these things. And so you, you shouldn't be surprised if you come back a year later and they haven't implemented a lot of the things that you talked about either because they didn't understand at the time, they got overwhelmed, they forgot about it, they lost motivation. So the analogy I like to give is, you know, if somebody came to you and said, Jason, I really need to quit smoking. I just, I need, I got to get rid of this habit. And you said, great, I got the service. I'll charge you this amount and I'm going to work with you. And you met with them and you spent even four hours with them. You're very generous with your time all at once. And you told them all these things they needed to do. And you said, okay, I'll see you in a year from now. I mean, you wouldn't be surprised if they hadn't quit smoking because it's not just always about what you need to do. It's about, you know, being motivated and seeing it through. And so the subscription-based pricing, what happened was we realized, oh, if we do this model where we just have this intake meeting and deliver all the advice, then we don't talk to them for a year from now. They're going to wonder, like, why are we paying you every month a fee? Because they see it. They're still paying a, a monthly fee either way, like under the AUM model. They just don't see it and they aren't aware of it. And ours, they're aware of it. So we thought to ourselves, like, we need a way to make it clear to them what we're doing for them. And what we kind of stumbled upon was, why are we rushing this? Why are we so concerned about having one big meeting where we deliver all the advice? And as soon as we unhinged from that, we realized, oh, great, wait a minute. Why don't we just break these and modularize this and say, we're going to have different meetings to discuss different topics. And so they're going to be, you know, a 45-minute meeting or an hour meeting rather than a two and a half hour meeting. And we're going to break them into subjects and you're going to have, you know, four or five meetings a year every couple months. Um, and so when we, when we leave a meeting, we say, well, we're going to set up the next one now, you know, and so let's schedule it. And they've got in their schedules. Okay. So when we come back, here are your to do items and we're going to check in on you. And did you get these things done? And so it really, for us, it motivated us to do what's in the client's best interest because it was in our best interest too, which is to stay in front of the client and make sure they understand the value that they're getting so that they continue to pay us. And for me, you can call this naive or, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, foolishly optimistic, but I think like people should pay a price because they 
full, like they know exactly what they're paying, but they so value what they're getting that they're willing to pay it. Yeah, that's, I see that. So then between meetings, is there anything else that would happen? Like, so let's say you meet, and this meeting happens to be the insurance meeting, and then three months from now, you're going to have the estate planning meeting. Is there anything that happens in the interim or are they uh, kind of, yeah. you, you figure they're just going to come back three months later with everything done. And I, I'm not suggesting that's not possible, yeah. but yeah. No, it, it, sure. There's a lot like, I mean, just practically speaking, there's lots of emails going back and forth and questions and Hey, like, okay. You know, so they've got a bunch of questions, you know, let's just jump on a quick call. I can answer them easier. So th- in between there's, there's touch points for sure. And sometimes we will go, two, three months and there's nothing to talk about and they're happy. And other times every week or every day, we're talking to them for a week because we're trying to work through this messy issue and they need lots of feedback. And so we try to, you know, the trick is really just to price it up front so that you know roughly that you're getting compensated well enough for the amount of time and effort and energy you're going to send, you're going to expend. And that's not always easy to predict, but I think you can do it reasonably well, especially as you get used to kind of looking for the warning signs in both the types of issues they've got to deal with and then just the type of you know personality that they are. And some people you can tell need a little more handholding than others. It's fair. Yeah. So let's uh, switch gears a little bit here and talk about um, impact investing. And maybe you can just take, and I just listened to, I think it was two episodes ago on your podcast where you had a guest do this, but I'm hoping you can just give a little rundown here of impact investing, SRI, ESG. What am I missing in there, David? I know you have a great- uh, Oh, a million one, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, sure. That's a great question. That's a great place to start. So I describe them as this. Uh, ESG investing is where an investment manager is looking at, well, they're doing their due diligence- there's different ways ESG can be done, but let's talk about it at its best. So ESG investing would be um, an investment manager is researching a stock or a bond and trying to, de- you know, researching a company to decide whether to invest in that stock or bond. And there's a whole bunch of factors they look at, you know, financial factors, um, you know, fundamental factors like their balance sheet and their um, income statement and all those things. And they're trying to come up with a decision about whether this is a good investment or not. And what's historically happened is they've ignored some of these uh, criteria that we would classify as environmental, social, or governance criteria. Interestingly, governance has long been a part of the the traditional set of things that an investment manager would look at because it's been pretty well understood that a, a well-governed company is going to be more profitable and a safer investment. But some of these environmental and social factors have been ignored. Like, you know, does the company clean up its messes and how much do they think about reducing their carbon footprint or, you know, how well do they treat their employees? You know, a whole bunch of things like that. And they traditionally just like the world has thought, well, if you're going to do something positive and good, it's going to be expensive and cost you money as a company. And so we're not going to factor that in because our goal is just to make a profit. So those things were ignored. And there's, a, I think, a real increasing realization that, hey, like these factors actually are really important in my risk adjusted return. I can actually mitigate some risk here. So the company that's more responsible about cleaning up its messes is less likely to face lawsuits, for instance. The company that treats its employees well is more likely to have higher employee retention. All both things that are good for profitability. And so investment managers are increasingly recognizing, oh, right, we probably have been underappreciating these ESG factors 
and we start we need to start thinking about them. So different ways to go about doing that. One is you can integrate ESG just into your normal investment process. You had a whole process and all these factors. We're going to say let's we're going to continue doing that. We're going to add these additional ESG factors which we might have been, you know, dismissing in the past. The other way it can be done is I want to screen for companies based on these ESG criteria. So, you know, as an investor I care a lot about my values and certain things matter to me. I don't want any exposure to fossil fuels so I can screen out companies that you know, are involved in fossil fuels, for instance, or religious institutions have done this for a long time. You know, I don't want exposure to gambling, pornography, alcohol, things like that. So you can kind of screen out companies based on these these factors, or screen in companies based on certain factors. I do want companies that have women on in their senior leadership, or you know, whatever those factors are. So that's that's ESG. I, the way I would describe it, though, if I'm going to boil it down to a nutshell, is you engage in this primarily for the, with the exception of these kind of the latter part of what I was saying, the values side of it, the ESG integration is done for the purpose of improving your risk adjusted return. It's not about, oh, I feel better about the world. I, I just think that these things are practical things to consider. Where I think we start to get into socially responsible investing or, or responsible investing is, or you know, there's a whole bunch of terms for it, sustainable investing, whatever you want to call it. Is like, hey, I, there's things that are important to me beyond the, the returns that I generate. And I, I still want to maximize my return as much as I can. But, I, you know, like the religious institution that says, you know, I don't care what happens to my return. I have a moral objection to pornography or whatever it is. You know, some people have those and you're going to just draw a line in the sand and say, I don't I do I do or I don't want these things, regardless of what happens to my return. So that's where I start to say you get into this like responsible investing kind of bucket. And then impact investing is just a, a I think a quite a meaningful step further than that, which is, oh, I want my investments to have a positive impact on the world. And that's very important to me. And I'm going to get a, dedicate time, energy, and resources to making sure that the investments that I make not only don't have a negative impact, they are actually positively impacting the world. And we can talk about that. Uh, unpack that further if you want. I really do. And that's, so let's say that I'm a client, I'm a retail client, and I'm dealing with an MFDA advisor. Mm -hmm. So how do I get exposure to, uh, and let's maybe just say ESG factors, and is there a way to get exposure on the impact investing side from a retail perspective? Yeah. Um, so the short answer is, is it's difficult. Um, it's not super easy. And this is a problem. I mean, the, the, the industry needs to mature a lot. There's a lot that needs to happen to make that easier and easier. It's possible, but difficult. So let's unpack it a little bit. ESG is, is a lot easier to get exposure to because, it, you know, and I've been in the industry for two decades and for the vast majority of that time, as you'll, I'm sure you'll attest, very few organizations paid any mind to ESG or would talk about it. It was the kind of the realm of the, the hippie tree huggers. <laughs> and there were a small number of organizations doing any meaningful work in that space. And they toiled away for, for decades in obscurity. And it's only maybe the past five, six, seven years where it just feels like it, there's, I can't find an investment manager anymore that doesn't claim to be doing ESG at a minimum. Um, and so what that means is there's just like an increasing number of products available that 
ostensibly a corporate ESG. Now, I think we can talk a little bit about whether they're greenwashing and how impactful they are. You've got to parse that. So that's part of the problem. Um, but also a lot of it happens in the, uh, in the ETF space. So if you're MFDA and don't have access to ETFs, that can be challenging for the retail investor. Um, and, the, and the fees on the actively managed response to, you know, ESG offerings can be quite high, unfortunately, still. Um, and even in the ETF space, they can be higher than they should. So kind of navigating the cost issue, but more importantly, probably is that most financial advisors that I bump into still don't have a, a good understanding of what ESG and responsible investing are. And so as a retail investor, you go to your advisor and they're not receptive to the conversation. And quite frankly, that's why I have an investment consulting practice, because that's the common experience. And when people find me, they, they're happy that somebody will help them work through this, uh, through their portfolio. And then is impact investing, like, is this a, a bridge too far for the retail investor? Um, it's, it's more challenging still, for sure. So impact investing, if I can unpack that definition a little bit, it, it's... Um, so I, it, has a, it has a very strict definition. So it, basically, you're making an investment that has both a, an intentional and a measurable impact. So there's two defining criteria, intentionality and measurability. So you have to be trying <laughs> to try to generate a positive impact. And then you have to measure it because the idea is, listen, every single action we take in this world has a, an impact, you know, whether it's on one person on our in our backyard in our neighborhood uh, at scale across the you know across the globe, uh, things that we do matter and they have an impact. So our spending decisions, our donations, our investments, are you know how, whether we drive our car or not. So the the question is: Is it intentional and is it positive? Is it positive? And if so, how much is it po- you know, a big a positive impact? And so um, impact investments because it's a like where they typically take place is in the private markets. So that doesn't lend itself very well to you know, ETFs and um, mutual funds. You can find mutual funds that have some private um, security, you know, private debt, private equity exposure, but there's not a lot of them doing that right now. Um, and so just it's, it's challenging from a liquidity standpoint. It's challenging from, a, you know, if it's happening in the private markets, you need to be accredited investor a lot of the time. There are some exceptions where some retail offerings are happening in the impact investment space. And the other thing I would say is, that you can so, despite the fact that it often happens in the private markets, it can happen in the public markets. I think I've listened to every episode of your podcast, and I remember one. So one that was specifically was a company out of BC, and I'm not going to remember the name. It was a, like a, a little six or seven letter name, and that was the one that I recall specifically. It was a crowdfunding model that was available to retail investors, but otherwise, it felt like pretty much everything that you had on there was in that accredited or institutional space, right? So that's... um, Yeah, the U.S. is is doing better here. So um, I'll give you an example. There's an organization in the U.S. called C-Note. There's the letter C and then Note. And they, um, Calvert is another one. They've been around for, for Calvert's maybe the original, like they've been around for decades doing impact investing and responsible investing. And C-Note's another more current example. And they both have... Um, socially responsible and impact investments that you can kind of make as a retail investor. They have an online platform. You can go set up an account and you can make an investment. Um, you know, what's available to retail investors is not always the same as what's available, even, even with those organizations to their, 
the, the higher net worth clients, but you can still get access. You can make sure your money is having a positive impact on the world. In Canada, that, that, that's more difficult. Um, you know, I found it difficult to get my head around, like, well, what does it mean to have an investment that, that makes a positive impact? Like, help me understand that as an, what's an example of something that you can, you can invest in. So if you want, I can do that or. Yeah, I, I'd like to hear that. I think that's interesting. You know, so social enterprise is another piece of jargon people might hear, a social enterprise. So that's something to my mind that the, it's a business, a for-profit business and their product or service is solving some sort of social or environmental problem. So let me unpack that. Unlike, say, you invest in something like Danone, and Danone's a big food manufacturer, best known for their yogurts my kids love. And uh, they're really well known for being a very responsible and even a, a positively impacting public market business, right? They try to use their resources and their business in a way that makes a positive impact. But at the end of the day, <laughs> they're still just producing yogurt and you know, traditional food goods for a profit. So you're kind of constrained by, you know, our main focus here is to just sell food. And while we're at it, we're going to try to do some good, which is wonderful. It's laudable. And we need all, we need more organizations to do that. But an impact investment is the whole reason our business exists is to solve this problem. And we've found a way to make a profit in solving this problem. So for instance, you know, the most the easiest and most obvious examples are technologies that fight climate change. If you're, if you're, if you're creating a technology that sequesters carbon from the atmosphere, puts it into the earth, you know, boy, that's wonderful. The like it's directly correlated. The better your business does, the better it is for our planet. And so that to me is a social enterprise because its business model is predicated on solving a social or environmental problem. And um, so a, a climate tech is a, is a good example of that. Yeah, that's good. And I know you and I talked about this on Twitter recently, and you talked about theory of change there as part of the uh, definition. Yeah. And, and I found that useful, right? That's, that's a good way to look at it. So, yeah. Yeah. So quickly, that theory of change is just like, if you're going to make a positive impact, you must have some sort of logical framework for how you think what you do makes an impact on the world and makes the world better, or solves this problem. And, and it just means you're formally laying out the logic for people to see and question and critique. Now, if we can maybe unite these two sort of threads of conversation we have going on here, where yeah. got, you, know, you talked about your clients early, and now you've given us a nice primer on investing where you're trying to accomplish something beyond just return on your invested dollar, let's say. So when you meet a client, and I'm assuming then the vast majority of our clients would be oriented towards impact or ESG or social impact, like somewhere in that ballpark, right? Yep. How do you figure out what's important to the client? How do you figure out, you know, like this client, and I'm sure there's some very concrete things here, but, you know, where do you start with this conversation? How do you, how do you lead the client to where you need them to be? Yeah. So some of our clients are very clear and they, you know, they, they know exactly what they want. And in other cases, so what we'll do is I have an exercise I walk through, uh, starts with some, um, some questions about the, how they view money. So basic, like, what are your money messages? Like what, what messages you get around money in your households growing up? Cause it tells you a little bit about how people view money and their relationship with it. So I'm not a, a financial therapist, but I, I, I like to get a little bit of context on, you know, just as a, you know, I, I, this would be like Brad Klontz kind of stuff, the money scripts, money inventory that. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, do you view money as a, you know, are you hoarding it or is it scarcity mentality? Is it, you know, used for power or for, you know, for spending or for enjoying? Like, what's your kind of mindset? And then really dive into a values exercise. So, like, what do you think, what are your values? That's an interesting question that I think a lot of people probably think they know until they sit down and you ask, you ask them to list them because you have to prioritize. We could all list a whole bunch of, I don't know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, uh, just like pithy things that just like, oh yeah, I, I think believe in love and friendship and of course, but like when it boils it down, if you have to pick five values, what are your most important values? And so we get people to, I give a kind of a, an, an inventory of potential values they could have to spark ideas and then they can add others. And I try to get them to narrow down to five. And then we think about how does that, how do those values translate into things that we can action? So if they say equality, for instance, okay, so that gives us something to work with. You think that everyone should have equal opportunity. Okay, if that's the case, then what are the barriers? Who, Who doesn't have equal opportunity? And what ways can you positively impact that? So maybe it comes down to gender or racial equality for you. Um, you know, maybe it comes down to, you know, like it could come down to things like mental health. Like, listen, there's not enough funding for mental health. And that's, you know, the people who suffer from mental health problems don't have the same opportunities and access to, you know, opportunities. So there's different ways that can manifest itself. And then we try to kind of wean it down into, okay, here's how these values can relate to these social or environmental issues and which ones kind of resonate with you and kind of, again, give them a laundry list and see if we can kind of thread the needle between those things. And then, so that's, that's great on the, like the client discovery side. And I know you don't recommend specific investments, but once you've been able to do that, how do you, how do you solve that problem? How do you get the client from, okay, I've got these values and you've identified what's important and, and, and now I need the portfolio that reflects that. So mm-hmm. what's the, what's the connection there? Yeah. So we'll go through it like a traditional asset allocation, risk tolerance, questionnaires, asset allocation, come up with what's appropriate in terms of their time horizon, risk tolerance, all that stuff. And then um, within, then we'll have kind of a breakdown within, within those asset classes. So like how much is Canadian versus US versus international, you know, how much is Canadian fixed income versus foreign, you know, all those traditional big bucket asset classes. Then within each of those um, I'll go through and say, okay, so if the client says, environment that climate change is a big issue and gender equality for instance what we tried to get down to is two or three really big ones that you care most about um and then i'll go through the 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 landscape um usually using morningstar because i'm familiar with their database they have uh they own sustainalytics now and so they they roll up all of sustainalytics data on under under individual companies like how well they rate from an esg perspective they, for each mutual fund or ETF, they'll roll up all of the scores of the underlying company so you can get a fund level rating. And, uh, and so I'll, I'll screen the universe based on um, their, their sustainalytics rating. Uh, so show me the best performers and the sustainalytics can break it down into how well they, not only the overall score, but how they score from an environmental, social or governance factor. So I can say, Hey, this company's great overall. This fund, their ETF is great overall, but you know, its environmental score is 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 not the thing driving it. It's probably poor on it's great on the social and the governance, but not on environment. So I can sort based on environmental scores and then mm-hmm. say, okay, listen, environment's really important to the client. So I'm going to focus on those. And then I go through and say, look at the fees and look at the providers, look at how the 
ETF is constructed or the mutual funds constructed, a lot of them are passive and make use of um, you know, screening criteria. In the case of actively managed mutual funds, there's a fair bit of extra work to be done because one of the, the values that can be at, one of the sources of value that can be added on an actively managed fund is shareholder engagement. And that means the, the investment managers control all the assets of that fund engage with the companies they invest in to try to get them to improve their practices, whether that's, you know, how they treat employees or their gender practices or their environmental um, practices. And that can be a big source of impact, um, you know, and, and can really help clients drive and align their, their values. So I'll have to, if, if we're looking at actively managed funds, um, then I'll, I'll do some extra research on, okay, what are, how do they engage with, you know, the firms that they invest in and, and do a bit of analysis there and ultimately come up with a recommendation for, you know, here's a few funds within each of these buckets of your asset allocation that match with your, your values, have low fees, you know, I think are constructed well, they make sense, they've got good people in place, they're resourced well. So, you know, there's a lot of variables uh, for success in place. So that becomes sort of the final, maybe not A-B testing, but you're, you're showing like your four choices and this one's going to have a little more of this and a little less of this. So now client, here's your final chance to express your values by the allocation of your resources. That's. Yeah. And all I would say is the one thing that I have to, you know, I think this is a really important point for any advisors who want to go down this route. You really have to set the expectations with your clients. Cause as you open this can of worms, you can go down a rabbit hole and you can start to ask a million questions about every little position in every little fund and what you will find if you go to far enough down the rabbit hole is that there are going to be things in every single fund that you don't like and that seem very counter to the idea of being socially or environmentally friendly. And so the, what I say to every client is this is an exercise you know, that we're going to try to make improvements. It's never going to be perfect. And what we hope is that over time, we'll continually make it better, but do not make perfect the enemy of the good or we will not get anywhere. That, that makes sense. It's, and it's impossible. Like you just, you can't do every single thing. And you just think about living your own individual life, right? You, you can't do everything perfectly. It's just a hundred. That's a really great analogy. If you think about, I want to live my life to be perfectly virtuous. You, you find you're full of double standards and contradictions. Yeah. It's, it's, it. and sustainalytics. So is this something, I mean, how many other folks do you know that would subscribe to sustainalytics? Would this be well, I subscribe to Morningstar. So what I don't get is all the underlying data on each security, each company. What I get access to the fund level data, and primarily the clients that I'm speaking to, I'm, I'm recommending on funds rather than individual securities. And also just the cost. You can, you know, Morningstar has products aimed at financial advisors like Advisor Workstation, uh, which is what I use. Um, Sustainalytics their lowest entry point isn't designed for a retail financial advisor. It's designed for institutions. So it's just a lot more expensive and I don't subscribe to it for that reason. Makes sense. Now, I don't necessarily need you to name firms here, but are there uh, discretionary managers out there, ICPM type firms that, that you like to send your clients to, or, you know, is it sort of client comes to you and they go find the firm they're going to deal with afterwards? Yeah. Um, so it could be a variety of things. So if the clients are interested to do it themselves, then I, again, I'm giving them recommendations of individual, like a, a, a few different products within each of the buckets of their asset allocation. They're ultimately making their own choice, you know, what they want to do and they'll execute it through a discount brokerage. 
But if they don't want to, then yeah, I'll have to refer them to a manager. Um, and in that case, yeah, I mean, there's there's uh, there's a few. So depending on the size of the client, you've always got like minimum investment you know, restrictions and geographic issues to, to worry about. But if I'm not worrying about any of those things, um, managers, uh, so A, like I wish there were more, <laughs> um, specifically like kind of in the SMA space where you can, they'll, they'll manage that client's portfolio individually. They'll, they will customize it a bit to that client's needs and wants. I wish there was more of that, especially in Canada. We're seeing a bunch of that. So Calvert is an example I mentioned earlier that run SMAs in the US. I think they do really great work. There's a, um, I, I don't, I'm not hundred percent sure if they actually, if they have an SMA, but they certainly have, uh, I think they do. Um, there's two, Adesina. Um, so A-D-A-S-I-N-A, Jennifer Robascati um, runs that, which I think is doing really interesting work, like impactful work in the public market space. Um, uh, NIA Capital, um, which is Kristen Hall. Both of these are US, unfortunately. In Canada, um, I like, uh, I think Van City does some really great work in this space. Um, I'm still getting to know Desjardins, but I, I know they've been doing it a long time. Um, and the other one is NEI that's been doing it a long, long time. So they're, they're the old ethical funds and they've been, that was my very first time I ever, I was working at a Canada Trust retail branch as a part-time financial advisor when I was 19. And uh, I had clients who came in that looked like traditional kind of hippie tree huggers and they showed me their investment portfolio and they said, oh, we just want to transfer this back to the bank because we just, we want to have it all in one place. And I looked at the statement and I, oh, ethical funds, what's that? <laughs> and uh, so they've been doing this for forever. And I, I, um, I haven't had a chance to dig back into them recently. I've just sort of started to get back in there, but uh, I think they're, they probably also do some, like they're div meaningful resources dedicated to it and been doing it a long time. So those are three, you know, pretty good examples. Oh, and then rally assets. I'm sorry, I should also mention. Do you know Rally, Jason? I don't know them at all, no. So Rally's a newer investment manager. Uh, just quickly, they had a, uh, they were originally started as um, uh, called uh, Purpose, uh, not Purpose, the Psalm Cease Purpose. They shared the same name. And they were a consulting organization for foundations, high net worth individuals. And recently they set up as a, a PM and they've uh, launched two offerings, uh, a total impact fund and a global equity fund. The global equity fund, as it you'd expect, is primarily public market securities. The total impact is also a lot, like 65% public, I think it's 65 public market securities, but has interestingly a 35% exposure to private um, securities, a lot of private debt. And they um, that side is like traditional true impact investments. Um, and I think they do really great work, but they're they're very new, so they don't have a long track record. They've been doing work this work for a long time, but don't have a you know, like a, a an audited track record for, for yeah, like a retail facing fund. There's yeah. 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 And they don't sit on every platform right now. So, you know, they do sit on certain platforms, but it's a challenge when you're a new manager getting onto platforms these days, as I'm sure you're aware. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, what about uh, crowdfunding here? Where does crowdfunding show up in your, like, this is a solution to a problem or, it's too difficult to access crowdfunding. Where does it show up on the spectrum for you? Yeah, so crowdfunding represents a real interesting opportunity to actually make impact investments at a retail scale. So the the firm you were mentioning earlier at a BC that you heard on my podcast is called Genies, um, and they uh, they're crowdfunding right now on a platform called Front Funder, 
and Front Funder is F-U-N-D-R, no E. Um, and uh, Front Funder, you know, does this type of work where you've got, you know, very social purpose or true social enterprises that are raising capital. And the to the credit of the, you know, the Canadian regulators, securities regulators, they've done a good job of adjusting the, um, the rules to allow crowdfunding. They were a little behind the US in this regard, but at least now you can do it. And so private companies that want to raise capital can do so without a prospectus if they restrict the amount that you're allowed to invest through the, you know, per individual to a low enough amount that they can go directly to crowdfund for, for capital. And so Genies is an example of a, an organization that's doing that. And there's a bunch of others. So svx.ca is one platform where you can go um, to find impact investments. They're not always crowdfunding ones. Some of them do have accredited investor minimums. Um, but Front Funder has, a, I think, a slightly higher percentage of kind of retail-oriented crowdfunding. And they are another example, frontfunder.com. Perfect. Uh, yeah, I'll throw, I got a whole bunch of links to throw in the show notes. <laughs> so that's, that's good. Keep you on your toes. Yeah, I like it. Um, now, what about investment returns? This is such a, I don't know, a, a laden topic, I find, this idea that, um, and you hear all kinds of different theories. Some people say you're going to increase your return. Some people say you're going to have a lower return. Is it a conversation we should be having or how do you position this with your clients? Yeah. So it's a conversation that I'm personally bored by, um, but I, yeah, I understand it. And I, I, we talk about it a lot. So that's not to say we shouldn't be talking about it here. And quite frankly, we need to have it. Um, to me, I, I, I don't, care uh, because I think the imperative is so great at this point on two big issues. For me, the big, big issues are climate change and wealth inequality. I think both of them represent existential threats to our way of life. Um, climate is obvious, but even wealth uh, inequality, the amount of social unrest we've seen, even in places like the United States, where I think inequality writ large is underpinning a lot of what we're seeing in the division and um, anger in the United States, which, you know, I think if you had talked about this two, three years ago, people would have laughed at me for suggesting that these threats might actually result in something that could, you know, undermine the free markets. But, you know, with the assault on their capital, the, you know, at the end of Trump's term, I think it just became real for people like, oh, right, this is something that, you know, is very serious. And so these things, if we're not managing them, if we're not, if we're continuing to operate in a manner where we have no regard for the impact that, that our spending or our activities or our investments are having on the planet, we're going to, we potentially lose all of our wealth, <laughs> right? <laughs> if there's no planet left to save because we've, you know, you know, destroyed the, you know, sent the, the, the um, balance out of whack and we've destroyed our environment. So, so I think these things are just like, I think we need to do them and I, it doesn't matter what the, what it does to our returns. That said, practically speaking, I understand that we can't all just have that attitude and there are fiduciaries who don't get the luxury to just say that. So I, what I'd say is, uh, but, but I would extend that argument and say that, these risks that I'm talking about, people would call those externalities, right? And that they, you know, MPT doesn't account for those things, modern portfolio theory, you know, like they aren't included in the model, they haven't factored them in. But I would say what they represent is a, is a, they, they are, they are market risks. It's just that the time frame is so long that 
you know, it's you know, for climate change to impact our investment returns is probably going to be, you know, a bigger a bigger time frame, or for wealth inequality to disrupt it. They those threats are like a long enough time horizon that people just don't think about them. But it's only a matter of time horizon, you know. So if we if we increase our horizon long enough, they become they're not externalities, I don't think, and we shouldn't think about them that way. And if you incorporate them into the into the process, I think what you find then is that um, our returns. It depends on what you're calling returns and over what time frame. If you say returns over five years, sure, I think that potentially, you know, some of the investment impact investments you could make where they make a positive impact in the world might have a lower financial return over the next five years. But if we're talking about what type of returns are we talking about? Returns can come in the form of social returns and environmental returns. And also, the last thing I'll say is the financial just means financial just to me and my little portfolio. But if we looked at the financial impact of what happens when you treat employees well and you give them time off and you, you know, give, uh, have policies that, you know, provide for the better for women and allow them to raise families or, or men to be off and be with their kids. And what's the societal financial impact of having parental leave policies that allow dads to be with their kids? It's hard to measure. So that's why we call these things externalities, but make no mistake, they exist. <laughs> so if we factored those things in, I think if we did that math, if we were able to do it, I think it would be overwhelmingly positive returns by making these investments. So it just depends on your frame, right? It's a good way to look at it is how, how do you frame that concept of a return? And again, I'm sure you're having that conversation a lot with people who are predisposed to, to look at that a certain way, right? Yeah, yeah, we're we're. I mean, the financial industry has co-opted the term returns. Returns, like if you say returns, everybody just immediately thinks, oh, what's my financial return on my investment? For me, just my financial return. So first of all, as I say, it's it's broader. It can be a societal financial return. And B, returns can come in all sorts of other forms. You know, just like well-being. <laughs> I mean, that's. I, there's no. I'm not going to be able to generate money from it, but boy, wouldn't it be great that we all just lived better lives? Yeah, I, I am. I really like, and I, I know it's not quite the same as what you're talking about, but an increasing focus in the field of financial planning on the concept of happiness or life satisfaction or those types of things. So I, I do think there's some appetite more broadly for getting, you know, for, for thinking about return as something other than, you know, my wealth grew by 7.2% last year or some version of that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I want to mention a book very quickly because um, it's a book specifically um, about how modern portfolio theory misses these bigger you know, kind of externalities and what we need to do to not throw away MPT. Because I think there are some things, you know, very, very valid um, aspects of MPT, but how do we adapt it to account for these um, externalities? Because at the time it was created, right, nobody was thinking about things like climate change and wealth inequality, potentially undermining free markets. And we're now more aware of them. And so we like, how do we update that model? So once I find the name of that, I'll, I'll drop it in here so you can put it in the show. Yeah, absolutely. If necessary, we can just throw it in the notes afterwards too. I'm happy to do that. Yeah. Um, I have one last question for you before I'll ask you to advertise whatever you want to advertise. I gave you a little bit of homework before the interview. Um, and that was to have a look at the body of knowledge from FP Canada. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you had a chance to have a look at that or not, but this is what financial planners sort of by default are being taught about um, 
responsible investing today. What would you like to see there? I guess, what do you think financial planners should be taught about responsible investing? Yeah, I, I guess I could give two answers. I mean, one is the is the kind of the shorter, more immediate term goals, and that would be, I think, things like um, giving people a, an understanding of the the language. Like that's really important. If you don't know the language, you're not going to be. You can't even learn about the rest of the stuff because you're confused by the terms and you don't have the. So that's the kind of fundamental building block. So I think, and that feels to me very achievable, very doable, something that could just be implemented right away, which is let's just get a common understanding of what do we mean when we say ESG and what what does that look like? You should be able to articulate how is ESG done? So what what is ESG integration? What are positive screens? What are negative screens? What's shareholder engagement? Give us an example of how that can happen. Give us examples of the various E, S, and G criterias, you know, and how you might structure them. Like that, that all is very basic stuff. How does that differ from impact investing? Um, what's a theory of change and how do you go about measuring and managing impact? There's some like, you know, and I'm not talking real advanced stuff, just, you know, you could explain to a lay person what those things are. Um, for a longer term discussion, what I'd love to see, and I don't, you know, I think this is a long way away, is we, we compartmentalize things into separate you know, into separate compartments because it's easier for us to understand things when we do that. But when we do that, we ignore the fact that everything's interrelated and connected. And so, for instance, we think about investing in philanthropy as two discrete activities that don't overlap. And I think about them as a set of activities on a single spectrum that have different trade-offs, but it's just the same same thing, just with different trade-offs. So for instance, with a donation, you're getting 100% financial loss. You won't get any of your money back other than the tax, you know, the potentially a, a, you know, a tax benefit from the donation. Uh, and then you're getting ideally some sort of positive impact for donating to that charity. On the investment side, if you pay no attention to making a positive impact with your investments, you're going to get hopefully the maximum risk-adjusted return you can get. Uh, some alpha there, and potentially some negative impact on the world. You know, if it's a polluter, you know, potentially, or or it's neutral or potentially positive, but, you know, you've got some sort of unknown. Let's take the worst example where there's a negative impact on the world. And then everything in between is just like sort of a trade-off of risk return, and like financial risk and financial return and impact. And so you could say, for instance, let's say an impact investment where you did have to sacrifice some sort of return I'm not saying that's always the case. Lots of times you can make a positive impact and produce a good return, uh, just as good a return. But sometimes certain problems, you have to give up something. It's going to cost us something. So that'll eat into your return. But you're arguably getting more impact, positive impact. And so now we're just, you see what I'm saying? We're just trading off financial risk, financial return and impact. And what, what combination of those things do we want? And so when you look at the world and you say, I want to positively impact this thing, if you consider these things all on a single spectrum, then you can say, okay, what's the best combination of these activities that'll drive the most impact in a way that meets my needs and goals and what I can afford to do rather than, well, I only donate here and then my investments, I don't care. I don't think about impact. Why wouldn't you think about impact throughout the entire spectrum of your activities, including your spending, by the way, conscious consumerism and you know, thinking of all of these things are connected, right? They all have an impact. So I'd, I'd, like, I'd love for them to talk about how planners can work with clients to think about their impact across all of their financial choices, how they give, spend, and, and invest. Yeah, I, I think this idea of 
sort of building wealth, building wealth, building wealth, and then having a huge amount to donate, but you haven't thought about, you know, what you did for the prior 60 years or, or like, I think that's, I think that contributes to the problem. Yeah, it's good to make those big generous donations later on, but I, I agree with you that you have to be more conscious about how you live your life along the way. Yeah. And again, can it be perfect? Yeah, I would just add to that. I think that's exactly right. And what, the way I would describe that is if you spend your lifetime acquiring, amassing wealth without having spent a lot of time because you're so focused on acquiring wealth that you're not thinking about social and environmental problems and challenges, you're going to be somebody who's got a whole bunch of money and doesn't know anything about how to solve the problems, which is not a good situation, right? Because you're probably not going to make particularly effective decisions with that wealth. You're going to have a lot of catch up to do. <laughs> so like, you know, why not spend, because these, I would say the social and environmental challenges of our day are probably the most challenging problems in the world. I mean, that's why they're so thorny and intractable, like wealth inequality. And, you know, like these problems are really, 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 really difficult. And you could spend your whole lifetime working on them and still be learning about how to solve them. So if you, if you wait for a long, long time and you mess all this wealth, you're just not going to be very effective at giving that away. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Now, any last minute uh, comments here, anything that we missed that you feel like um, the advisors listening to this should be aware of? No, I, 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 would, I would say that if you uh, just, I reiterate the point that please, you know, know that perf- don't make perfect the enemy of the good. I can't count the number of times that people, you know, point out an ESG fund or an impact investment and say, oh, well, look at the, look at, they invest in this. Haha, that's so silly when they claim to be doing good in the world. You know, it's just, it's difficult. You're never going to get a perfect portfolio. And usually when you're, when you're optimizing for one thing, you can't optimize for everything. So if you say I'm optimizing for the removing fossil fuels or for the environmental impact writ large, and then you've got animal testing happening in your portfolio and lots of companies that are exposed there, or what, what we see a lot, uh, companies that scoring really well from an environmental standpoint are overweight in technology because they're avoiding energy mining, you know, those resource intensive industries. So they're really big in technology. And then you say, well, look at Facebook and Google and Amazon and the negative impacts that they're having. Well, yeah, of course. But like, so we're, you've got to optimize for something. You can make improvements and not be perfect. And so I think if you're coming into it, you know, in a genuine attempt, don't let these sort of contradictions, you know, discourage you from making improvements. Yeah, and it, it is a vote with your feet issue, right? The more people that make these kinds of choices, the more compelling the case is for asset managers to to respond to that to client demand too, right? So it's not even like the impact is necessarily just on, let's say, where you're actually invested, but but how you're invested has an impact here. Yeah, 100%. Um, and just before I forget, the last thing I was going to say, that book was called Moving Beyond Modern Portfolio Theory. And... Uh, the author is John Lekomnik. Thanks. Yeah. All right. Beautiful. Okay. Well, thanks very much. You've been very generous. You've got a huge range of knowledge here that I, I feel like we were able to mine. And I think there's a lot of stuff here that a lot of folks will not have been exposed to. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, if anybody's listening, the, I host a podcast on impact investing called the Impact Investing Podcast. And uh, kindwealth.ca is the website where you know, we'd offer the financial planning and, and responsible investment consulting. The 
investment consulting isn't featured very prominently on the website, but if people have questions, want to know more about how to kind of do that or have clients who want help with that, uh, they can find us there. 100%. Yeah. Thanks very much, David. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks so much. To obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz. And also, you'll have to pay attention to the interview. There are five questions in there, and you'll want to do well on all five. Pass grade is 60%. So the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online. That's BCC is in Business Career College. So pop over to bccquiz.online. There's a short five-question quiz there. You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your CE credits. And it's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits. They say that's a great idea, but I'd still like to get those numbers up. So please pop over to bccquiz.online. 15 bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need, including your professional responsibility credits. And we're doing two episodes a month now, or one episode every two weeks. So please pop on over to bccquiz.online and subscribe. Okay, David uh, specifically reached out to me after the podcast and asked if I would uh, mention impactinvesting.how. He mentioned a lot of resources as we're going through this, but a great starting point here is the website impactinvesting.how, which you'll see in the show notes. And I would encourage you to explore the resources. I learned a lot just going through uh, putting the links in the show notes for today's episode. So there's, there's lots there. Really great stuff. The number for today's episode is four. The number for today's episode is four. Okay, I haven't yet booked our guest for the next episode. I'm looking forward to seeing who I get. I've got a big range of people that I'm going to ask, and I have some ideas for what season three is going to look like. Um, If you have ideas for guests, I'd love to hear them. I hope you do join us again in two weeks' time when the topic will be a surprise to me and I guess by extension a surprise to you. Thanks so much and enjoy your continued studies. There are quite a few people who help out with getting these episodes to air. Joseph Tong takes care of our editing. Brian Nguyen takes care of all of our continuing education approvals. And Sushami Parmelopaquette, Ji Wu, Lisa Hoffert, and Penny Watt, my mother, make sure that we have people listening to the podcast through their marketing and sales efforts. Thank you so much.